Welcome to the 34 Circes Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure. Take the adventure with us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we are going to talk Classical Studies 101. We're going to do a summary of the Iliad. Uh, but first, if you'd be so kind as to leave us a lovely rating or a lovely comment on whatever podcast platform you are using to listen to us, that would mean a lot. It would help us to reach more people and to share these stories more widely. And of course, now to introduce the guide that has been with us all the way through from the beginning of our overview of the Iliad through all of our chapters, the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. And the adoring crowd, as always. So, Gary, we just finished, I think, something uh, very special. We did. We covered all 24 chapters of the Iliad. Yeah. What did you give us first? Just let's just summarize the story for the listener. Just give them a whole overview from uh, what the story was about, uh, what the why it's important in our culture, because that sometimes gets questioned. And then let's just take your thoughts on it, just in review. Well, the Iliad is, uh, <clears throat> I think, it's the greatest story of war ever written, and it was written by a man that we call Homer. <clears throat> There's been controversy about whether uh, there was one man called Homer or multiple authors of um, the Iliad and the, the other masterpiece, the Odyssey. I think it was one man, and for lack of absolute proof, we'll, we'll call him Homer. I think just to jump in on that, I think oftentimes scholars get uh, infected with what I, what I call their the, there is no Santa Claus syndrome. They're very caught up on debunking any myth, any idea, anything that seems larger than life. And by, I shouldn't say myth because I, like you, agree that there was a single man called Homer, a single man who wrote this work. You can feel it in the way it's written. You can sense it in its its style and its, and its integrity. But I think scholars with almost any subject want to somehow prove or disprove the idea of some larger than life, some transcendent figure, thought, or idea. It's the same thing that happens for me with the whole concept of the Amazons. So please continue. Well, yeah, it's just like there's some scholars that say that the Trojans weren't Greeks, that they were uh, Hittites or something, you know, from Anatolia or what is now Turkey. And it's not true. I mean, I've been to Troy. The architecture is Greek. The, uh, the, pro uh, the ceramics are Greek, and uh, the names that Homer uses are Greek. And as I said in the program, in our previous uh, programs, um, there's one part where uh, Homer has Zeus, the king of the gods, say, of all the cities uh, under the sun, uh, I honor holy Troy most with my immortal heart. So Homer isn't going to have the king of the gods say that a foreign city was his favorite city. It's just not going to happen. 
Certainly makes sense. And you've, you've presented other information to me in the past, uh, uh, arguing for the, the Greek nature of this, of this civilization, of this city. So what is it, um, so what is it about this work that you think um, is both special and important to uh, contemporary culture, to modern culture? Well, I just want to start off. We've been using um, Robert Fagel's 1990 translation, although a lot of scholars favor the 1951 translation by Richmond uh, Lattimore. But, you know, both are good. Lattimore may be a bit more accurate. Um, and, um, uh, you know, in, in uh, the absolute translation, but uh, Fagel's is very readable. And he says here in his introduction to his translation, Iliad is a word that means a poem of Ilium. He says, uh, i.e., or that is Troy. Actually, he should have used the word Ilios, which is uh, the Greek word for Troy, Ilios. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ilium is more of a Latinized, you know, when the Romans uh, uh, conquered that area, they they revered Troy because they believed they were the descendants of the Trojans. I'm, I'm glad you're admitting it, Kerry. I'm glad you're admitting it. Well, I mean, that's what they think, but... Uh, it's not true, but anyhow. Oh, well, I told you someday we're going to solve that one. All right, sorry, go on. Okay. And um, the, the basic story is it takes place in the, the last year, the 10th year of the 10-year-long Trojan War. Uh, and as I've been saying all along, uh, when I was young and I was first reading a story, I just was wondering why 10 years for the Trojan War and why 10 years also for King Odysseus's voyage home from Troy. And then uh, I, I discovered, I think, that 10 is a sacred number. And so it's, it's part of a uh, series. Say, say, yeah, let's say, say more about your sacred number theory. So uh, I wrote a research paper on this because I kept uh, noticing that Homer keeps mentioning the same numbers over and over and over again throughout the uh, Iliad, and uh, with 12 being the primary sacred number. Uh, Odysseus sails to Troy on 12 ships. Uh, Achilles kills 12 sons of Priam, you know, at the end of the Iliad. Um uh, to honor his fallen uh, hero and great friend, Patroclus, maybe lover, according to some people. Um, it, it's just as rife throughout the uh, Iliad. It's, so and, it's either those numbers or multiples of those numbers, correct? So sometimes there are multiples of your sacred numbers that he uses. Well, yes, because uh, it's interesting that uh, Aristarchus of the uh, ancient library of Alexandria um, and, and scholars there uh, divided the Iliad and the Odyssey up into 24 books, uh, even though the Odyssey is, I mean, the Iliad is 15,670 uh, or something like that, uh, lines of poetry, and the Odyssey is about 12,000. Um, yet they both have 24, which is double the sacred number 12, and I think that's the reason I think the reason for number 12 is that there are 12 Olympian gods. Mm-hmm. 
So each of these sacred numbers has a, a meaning, a secret meaning, uh, and a resonance, and that's why they appear uh, frequently in the work, is your theory. Yeah. Besides uh, 12 and 10, you have nine, the nine muses. You have seven, uh, you know, Calypso, the uh, beautiful nymph, keeps Odysseus on her island for seven years, you know. Uh, the number three, there are three main gods. There's Zeus, the ruler of the heavens, Poseidon, the ruler of the seas, and Hades, the ruler of the underworld kingdom of the dead, and all three rule the land. So uh, you have these sacred numbers that just keep uh, occurring and occurring. And I don't think it's random, you know. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very reasonable theory. I mean, certainly Pythagoras and the, the many uh, that was particularly important in ancient Greece, these theories of numbers and number systems and secret number systems. So it's not out of, it's not out of left field. It's, uh, it's, um, it's really wonderful that you have noted that in this work. And uh, so uh, say more, please. Uh, as to the significance of it, um, uh, many, you know, scholars have considered the, uh, very early translation by Alexander Pope to be the best one ever. Uh, I find it a little contrived and, uh, you know, he tried to work them into, uh, you know, like couplets and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. um, it's not as readable to me as uh, other translations like Fagel's. So what's the translation you'd recommend to the listener if they want to go out and uh, well, I think to uh, go through the copy themselves? Enjoyed the most. I, I represent. Uh, I, I would recommend Robert Fagel's 1990 translation. Mm, okay. But anyhow, he, he opens his preface by saying he, he quotes, uh, uh, you know, Pope, and he says Homer makes us hearers, and Virgil leaves us readers. So the great translator of Homer, no doubt, unknowingly set at odds the claims of the oral tradition and those of the literary one. The loft and carry of Homer's imagination that sweeps along the listener together with the performer. There's, there's something powerful in this song, the unequaled fire and rapture, as Pope said, which is so forcible in Homer that no man of true poetical spirit is master of himself, and so on. And he says, in Homer, and in him only, burns everywhere clearly and everywhere irresistibly. So he's talking about the, uh, the great significance of, uh, of Homer's, you know, work. And uh, others have called it, you know, one of the, <clears throat> the, the uh, you know, main uh, influencers of European literature. I, I call it the greatest influencer because it influenced everything. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. It is the primary text from which all else springs in European thought and literature, so many of the tropes, the ideas. Uh, one thing that struck me in, in going through it with you and going through it chapter by chapter was how modern the entire plot structure, character development, all of those things are still as as very modern and real as today. Also, the, the humanity of the characters are as modern and real. So, so clearly what we have received, and frankly, what Homer did was much better than most of the stuff I'm seeing on TV right now, but um, I mean, far better. 
But what we have received from Homer is a way to tell stories and, and, and story constructs, story tropes. They still resonate with us. We still use them. Yes. You know? And um, the thing is, like I keep saying, it's the greatest story of war ever written. And uh, there's a uh, sequence where the Greeks are battling against the Trojans before the city. It's called the Battle Before the City. And it's as relevant as what's going on in Kish today in Ukraine. Battle before the city. Right, indeed. Well, that certainly has not changed in a few thousand years, the way men, and in particular we're talking about men and patriarchies, conduct themselves amongst themselves. So, yes, absolutely. You know, so the, the thing is that uh, Homer, um, he's, he describes in sometimes great detail, you know, gory detail, uh, you know, battle scenes and duels between the heroes and uh, swords and spears, you know, piercing to, uh, you know, the opponent's brains and all that sort of thing and blood on, all over the ground and stuff like that. But at the same time, he presents, you know, compassion and, and sympathy for the victims. I mean, it's just really, truly uh, remarkable. And it's just like the final chapter we did of the Iliad. As I keep saying, um, it doesn't end with the glorious downfall of Troy with the Trojan horse. The Trojan horse is barely mentioned. I mean, uh, it, it's much more prevalent in Virgil's Aeneid. Um, yeah, we can talk about the epic cycle. Yeah. But um, yeah, you pointed out the four women in that chapter. The four main women of Troy. And you have Queen Hecuba. You have the, who's the mother of Hector. And you have Andromache, the wife of Hector. And you have Cassandra, the sister of Hector. And then you have Helen, who becomes known as Helen of Troy. Even though she's from Sparta, and she was a wife and queen of uh, Menelaus there in Sparta. And uh, according to Homer, that's what uh, provoked the Greeks to attack Troy, although most scholars today think it was economics. It wasn't, you know, if, if there was a Helen, she wasn't the main cause. She might have been an excuse for the war, but she wasn't the main yeah. cause of the war. I, I would bet she was an excuse. I mean, you look at, the, again, you were using the modern, uh, modern um, comparisons uh, and Look at how modern world leaders, well, all world leaders throughout history, use excuses. They come up with an emotional excuse for their territorial, for their uh, commercial reasons to invade. They look for an excuse that their people will believe in and that their people aren't going to be enriched the way their leaders and their generals, etc., will be from warfare. In fact, they'll probably be impoverished and they'll probably suffer because of it. So... They use the emotional ploy, and this would be a perfect emotional ploy. Our queen was taken. You know, yes. many many of the legends say she left. You know that Menelaus was not exactly the kind of person you'd want to be married to. So, but you make that story. And, and what was, and was she abducted, or did she go willingly with Prince Paris exactly. of Troy? Exactly, and I think that's the thing that struck me in particular in looking at how the female characters were portrayed in this 
is the fact that Homer was so compassionate to Helen. I didn't expect that. You know, I had read parts of the Iliad. I knew, of course, like everyone, I knew the story. But when we went into it in our more of a deep dive, it was interesting to see just how humanely Helen was treated. Well, and for that, me. I think, is a lot about Homer. Well, for example, when the uh, Greeks are first advancing on Troy, uh, Helen is up on the this tower of Troy, looking down with King Priam, and she sees, you know, the uh, the coming terrible uh, conflict, you know, Agamemnon and Menelaus and so on, uh, you know, her husband and Odysseus and great Ajax, you know, all these heroes of the Greeks. And she knows it's going to be terrible. And so she turns to Priam and she says, oh, I, I, I wish I would have, uh, you know, in essence, she says, I wish I would have gone home before now to keep you from this terrible war. And King Prime responds with great sympathy. You know, this is, this is why I'm so impressed with Homer. And he says, uh, no, he says, you are not the cause of this war. I, for that, I hold the gods to blame. So he shows Helen utmost, uh, you know, sympathy. Yeah, and that is an impressive for the father, king of the city, a city under siege. Um, you would think he would be scornful or disdainful of this. this yeah, I mean, a lot, you know, I mean, she, she, was, she was subject to a lot of, you know, Trojans saying, you know, what are you doing to us? You know, get out of here. You know, you're bringing a terrible war on us and we're going to, uh, you know, be killed or whatever, you know, women raped. So much, mm-hmm. so much of the myth, uh, some of the stories around Troy, is, uh, I want to circle back to a few things, but so much of the stories around Troy that we know of that are famous aren't in the Iliad. So just, again, can you just give an overview of what the, the, the this poem actually covers in terms of the Trojan War? Because things like the Trojan horse, like you were saying, don't really show up in this. Uh, the way Achilles dies, if I'm not mistaken, though, it just doesn't it doesn't show up in this. So, what is in this, and what is not in this that we are that's famous from this wall? Well, you just mentioned something that's not in it, you know. Right. Um, and uh, the uh, the first line of the Iliad, which is uh, in Greek, is "Men and Ada Thea Peleadio Achilles," and uh, Fagel has a good translation of it, and he says, Rage, goddess, sing of the rage of Peleus' son Achilles. And that's how he he translates it. I, th- I think that's good, even though he mentions rage twice, but um, but uh, you know, it's a it's a good translation. And um, so, so this is about uh, the, the the fury of Achilles is the, what the Iliad. If we, and one, I guess, one way for people, the listeners, to think of this is just like any story we tell today—a story about World War II. Let's say, you know, when you go to see a movie about World War II, you don't have a film that takes on the entire war from theater to theater. You know, you'd be in there for you know fifty hours. You see about a particular aspect or a particular story in the war. So Dunkirk, you might see a film about Dunkirk, yeah, or a Bridge Too Far, trying to get you know take a bridge, or you might uh, see a, a film about uh, attempt to assassinate 
uh, you know, a leader during the war, all sorts of things. So the Iliad puts in perspective, puts a, a spotlight on Achilles' um, role in this conflict. Would that be fair to say? That it's, it, that it, yes. It mostly focused no, it, on that. it's about um, Achilles' rage or anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Lattimore translated it as anger, not rage, but most translators use the word rage, which I kind of prefer. And and what, what the rage is, is, uh, you know, Agamemnon, who is the high king of the Greeks, kind of like King Arthur was the high king of England, even though there were other kings at the time. <clears throat> um, and he leads the Greeks against the Trojans. And by the way, throughout the Iliad, the Greeks are called Achaeans. They're not called Greeks. Oh, that's uh, very important, yeah. And um, so what it is is um, uh, Agamemnon uh, takes this beautiful daughter of this priest of Apollo. And uh, Apollo is a god of light and music and uh, poetry and so on. Um, and... Uh, and, and so her father comes to Agamemnon, and he begs to have his daughter returned. And Agamemnon threatens to kill the old man if he doesn't get out of his sight, that kind of thing. And so Apollo, the, the uh, old priest goes down on the seashore and prays to Apollo, and Apollo brings a terrible plague, which we can relate to right now with COVID. Right. A terrible plague on the Greeks, and they're dying left and right, you know, and— uh, hordes of them. And uh, so the uh, Greek leaders, Odysseus and old King Nestor and so on, uh, have a meeting with Agamemnon. They say, you got to give the girl back. Otherwise, we're all going to die. And uh, so he agrees to give her back. Uh, but um, he has to have a replacement. He has to be compensated. This is the way he thinks. And uh, so he takes away the uh, love slave of Achilles. Achilles won on the way to Troy because they attacked other cities on the way to Troy. Um, And this really angers Achilles because he truly cares for Briseis, his love slave. Um, And because of that, Achilles sulks and he refuses to fight throughout most of the Iliad. It's important to say something too about this, that when we're talking about love slaves, we're talking about war, war rape. We're talking about abducted women as well. Yes. So it's and it's interesting because again, Homer doesn't glorify or aggrandize this. He shows it. So I the reason I'm pointing this out is because I I there can be a way to sometimes conflate a misogyny in Homer with a misogyny in ancient Greece. I don't my read of it, and you tell me what you think, Gary. My read of it is that Homer is not at all, does not present anything in a misogynistic fashion. No. That he is, if anything, he's very compassionate to his, to the women of Troy and the goddesses, which, of course, many writers of today forget about, that there are gods and goddesses in this, and in particular, goddesses get overlooked. But he shows them in a very humane, very powerful light. It's just the world of the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, was incredibly misogynist, not just patriarchal, which it often is it absolutely tied to misogyny completely, but they were world champions of it. Yes. Uh, it, it must be said. So anyway, please go on. Well, to support what you're saying, as we said a while ago, um, you know, Homer ends the Iliad with those four 
grieving women, grieving over the death of Hector, who was killed by Achilles, in revenge for uh, Hector having killed Patroclus, the great, you know, friend and lover of uh, Achilles. Mm-hmm. And so he shows the humanity and compassion for the women in that final chapter in just extremely moving ways. You know, for example, Cassandra, when King Brian uh, gives Achilles to return the body of Hector, which he's been desecrating, dragging in the dust you know, behind his chariot. And when Cassandra from the walls of Troy sees her father bringing back the body of Hector, she cries out to all the Trojans. She said, Trojans, if ever you welcome Hector home from war, come now to his final return. And uh, I forgot the exact words Homer used, but they're just so beautiful and moving. And and Homer says, and all the people of Troy wept, you know. It's, it's an incredible, an incredible sequence. And we you know what, at some point, you know, we, we've talked about uh, dramatizing this and, and I, I, I'm moving towards trying to put that in, in motion. Uh, this scene is an important scene to show. Uh, as, like as I said, and you said earlier, not to leave the gods out of the story, which essentially the a movie with Brad Pitt, Troy did leave the gods out. And, uh, that yeah, was- to the Troy. Troy did that, and we we reviewed. So for those that we reviewed Troy, the two thousand four. Look into look at look for it in our episodes. We also reviewed Hercules, which I'm a big fan of. The Rocket. Uh, he was he was great. He's a great Hercules. But they leave even in Hercules the gods out. So it's a, some sort of modern. Uh, I, I suppose they think they're too clever by half, more clever than the ancients. They know these things are just fake, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? You really can't understand the story or the magic or what makes it transcendent when you leave the gods and goddesses out. No, because so. Homer involves them so intricately throughout the whole, you know, epic poem. Exactly. Exactly. You know. So. And that that's um, why, uh, you know, you and I agreed that if we did a uh, uh, Game of Thrones-like uh, show, which I think would be better than Game of Thrones, because I, I didn't like the way women were, uh, you know, depicted throughout the thing in the in the main, um, uh, we would call it Rage of the Gods, and, uh, and emphasize how the gods, uh, you know, were involved. Well, I, I agree with you. I would agree with you. And one thing about Game of Thrones, there was a lot of problematic stuff with women, but they also did, as a Game of Thrones fan, uh, have some good queens. The saddest part of it was the last season. I won't go into it. All the Game of Thrones fans know what I'm talking about. Um, well, and the thing well, is, let's, as I yeah. said before, uh, the writer of Game of Thrones, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, George R. R. Martin. Yeah, Martin. Yeah. Um, that uh, he was inspired by Homer because he has a major queen with the name of Circe in Game of Oh, absolutely. George R. R. Martin is an extraordinary writer. Um, but we'll, we'll do that. I, I plan on having us talk about that another time. Let's, let's, we're almost coming up to our, our time on this. Let's kind of just give me your, your final thoughts and feelings on this and, and just what you'd want to leave everyone with as we now depart from the Iliad and let's announce it. We're going to turn to the Odyssey. I can't wait. I, I can't I wait either. Wait That'd be great. Start on, that, start on this. So, Gary, give us your parting thoughts. Well, again, I just want to say it's the greatest story of war ever written, the most influential. And uh, Homer, to me, is the most influential artist who ever lived. Because the thing is, you have, uh, you know, cities uh, like, you know, Ithaca, New York, right? 
and uh, mm, yes. Homer, Alaska, they all derive from Homer. And uh, one of our artists has that. Um, and, uh, and his story, you know, talking about the terrible uh, tragedy of war and the consequences of war is as relevant as the war is going on in Ukraine right now. And he begins it with a plague that Apollo sets on the Greeks, which is as contemporary as, as uh, how we've been suffering with COVID. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a fantastic story. And I think if people read it with, uh, you know, uh, uh, earnestly, they'll be really uh, deeply moved by it. Uh, it's incredibly relevant. In fact, one, I'll share with you one thing. I, I do a lot of, I love sports, and so I often will watch old football broadcasts. And so, um, and old baseball and basketball, I just like to watch some, some of the classic broadcasts. And so you talk about the reference to the, the relevance of Homer. So we have a team in Los Angeles that is Gary's school, which is the UCLA Bruins, but there's also their rivals, the USC Trojans, directly right. taken from the elite. And I was watching a game between the Trojans, USC, and Notre Dame. And as part of their opening, they pulled out a Trojan horse and had the football players jump out of the horse. Really? Which I thought was just wonderful, smart, hilarious. Yeah, they had, they pulled out, a they were playing the Trojans, and so they pulled out the Trojan horse, and then the a couple of the football players jumped out of the horse, which I thought was a brilliant idea. They should do that all the time when they play. Yeah, they should. They, they, I would like they have Tommy Trojan ride around the horse, but I like the Trojan horse idea. That'd be great. Yeah, well, that was their their opponents had the Trojan horse, so that was why well, that was pretty funny. So I'll I'll send you the clip. Uh, so again, my parting thoughts on this is a masterwork. This is a, a foundational work of literature. I encourage everyone to to read it. I encourage everyone to keep an open mind to it, and I encourage people who are questioning its relevance and questioning its its integrity and whether it's okay to teach it in a diverse world. Homer's work transcends any ethnic boundaries, any national boundaries, any language. Homer's work is about humanity. Yes. And if we can't reach to people who are different than ourselves, if we can't understand and embrace and love their stories, then we lose our humanity. Enough with this idea that Homer should be taught. That is nonsense. Homer should be taught everywhere. Because it, what Homer teaches you is humanity and understanding and in the horrors of what men, particularly men in particular, will do to other men. So, And also the humanity and strength and bravery of women as well. Absolutely. So on that note, I want to thank Dr. Gary Stickle. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for guiding us along this journey with all your years and knowledge of scholarship. Well, thank you. It's been uh, it's been terrific. I really look forward to the Odyssey with you. Yes, and we'll be turning towards the Odyssey. This is Sean Marlon Newcomb. You've been listening to the 34 Circe Salon, the Parallax Channel. We have reviewed the Iliad. We've finished our journey through it, and we're going to turn towards the Odyssey. Thank you all for listening, and God bless. <laughs>